coming up on episode eight of the ELB podcast. What is the state of voting rights in the United States as we approach the 2016 elections? Has the loss of a key portion of the Voting Rights Act, thanks to the Supreme Court's Shelby County decision, made it harder to register and vote? What tools do voting rights advocates have to fight the latest efforts to restrict access to the ballot? On episode eight of the ELB podcast, we talk to Stanford law professor Pam Carlin. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to episode eight of the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law blog. I'm joined today by Professor Pam Carlin, who is the Kenneth and Harl Montgomery Professor of Public Interest Law and the co-director of the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic at Stanford Law School. She recently finished a stint as Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice, where she focused on voting rights. Pam is one of the country's leading academics and practitioners in the area of voting rights. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Pam. Thanks, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So um, you've had experience uh, in the Justice Department, in academia, and I know you're speaking now for yourself and not for I the Department am. of Justice. I, I want to make that very clear. Uh, that uh, Very clear. All right. Uh, so I want to start with a very general question. How would you assess the state of voting rights today compared to, say, the 1960s and the 1980s? Because there's been a lot of talk about how bad things are, but I just want to get your sense from a kind of longer historical perspective of where, where are we today on voting rights? So I think there are two different questions you might be asking. One is, on the ground, are people voting? And the second is, what's the state of the law? On the ground, voting is better today than in the 1960s. I mean, there's no state that's anywhere near Mississippi. Mississippi in 1964, 6% of blacks who were eligible to register and to vote were actually registered. And there's nothing like that anywhere in the country. So in that sense, we're much better off today. In terms of where the law is, there has been some retrenchment. I think if you go back and look at the fundamental equal protection clause jurisprudence of the 1960s, they were applying strict scrutiny to restrictions on the right to vote. They weren't applying a balancing test or an undue burden test. And since Crawford, the Supreme Court really has moved to the idea that uh, voting restrictions should be assessed under a balancing test in which they give a very big thumb to states' claims about administrative convenience and the like. So in that sense, the law today is not as good as the law was in 1960. And what about compared to, say, the 1980s and 90s? Do you think it's harder to vote now than before the period, uh, say, the post-Bush versus Gore period of the voting wars? So I'm not a political scientist, and I don't keep up with the precise numbers on turnout, except to the extent that I was looking at them in the course of various kinds of, of litigation. But it does seem to me that there's been a sustained attempt across red states to roll back the ease of voting, to make voting harder. And I can't imagine that that isn't going to have some consequence in the long run. In the short run, it's often hard to know because elections are each so different one from another that you can't really measure turnout one election to mm -hmm. the next uh, reliably to indicate something about voting. And the other thing is, of course, that when you first try to take people's right to vote away, they get angry about that. And that creates its own um, backlash, or we might call it a frontlash, in which 
groups organized to get people to the polls to show they're not going to let their vote be taken away. But whether those efforts can be sustained over the long haul is itself a real question. I want to turn to the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and how do you, uh, so uh, in the Shelby County case, the Supreme Court put it on hold or declared its death. Um, how would you say that the loss of Section 5 has affected the state of voting rights? And, and specifically, what do you make of the point now that you've seen on the ground that Justice Kennedy floated in the Shelby County oral argument that Section 2, uh, with injunctions, could be an adequate substitute for the loss of Section 5? So Section 2 with injunctions cannot be an adequate substitute for Section 5, and I think there are probably three reasons for this. The first is the resources required to bring and win a Section 2 case are orders of magnitude more than the resources necessary to block or to deter a change under Section 5. Uh, all of what the Supreme Court referred to as the burden of time and inertia have now been switched onto the victims uh, and onto the Department of Justice. So the first thing is it's much more expensive. The second thing is that Section 5 took an entire part of the country off of the Section 2 table largely. And now you have to bring Section 2 lawsuits across the country. So it's not just that you need the resources in the Section 5 states. It also means those resources that were used that were that were not necessary in the Section 5 states and could be deployed in the, in the non-covered jurisdictions now have to cover both the previously covered and the non-covered jurisdictions, and that's difficult. And the third thing is that when you layer Section 2 onto the so-called Purcell principle, it's not just that you have to get the law blocked, but you have to bring the lawsuit so far before an election that you can get it blocked in a way that doesn't leave the Supreme Court to lift or to stay the injunction. And we saw this the last time around uh, with, for example, the Texas voter ID case, where even once you had a full trial, the Supreme Court seemed unwilling uh, to stop a law from going into effect for the next election. So Section 2 is a great statute, don't get me wrong, but it is not a great way of blocking changes in voting technology and voting techniques. And it really was developed largely for what are called second-generation problems, not for first-generation participation issues, but for second-generation aggregation issues, where those things only happen once a decade, leaving aside the Texas we redistricting yes. for a moment, but they usually only happen once a decade, and there's plenty of time to litigate them and get them decided. Yeah, uh, although some of those cases can some take Some of those cases drag on forever, but at least you don't have endless changes right before elections, and then changes on top of changes that make it hard to continue litigating the Section 2 case, because now that the law has changed, you have to go back and redo all the expert reports to figure out what the impact of the new new law is. Right. I want to come back to the point you just made about the what Dan Takashi calls the new vote denial cases, the first-generation cases that are now coming into yeah. Section 2 cases. Yeah, first-generation 2.0. Yeah, right. That's this is it. not your grandfather's first generation case. Right. So um, what we've seen a kind of a, a maybe two approaches, two general approaches. The approach that we saw in the Fifth Circuit opinion that's now on hold because it's on bank in the VC case out of Texas, uh, which I think is the same as the Fourth Circuit standard in the North Carolina case um, uh, and the Sixth Circuit standard 
uh, in maybe that's the Obama case. Uh, um, uh, but the Seventh Circuit seems to have a much uh, tougher standard when it rejected a Section 2 claim in the Wisconsin voter ID case. Do you think this issue is going to come to the Supreme Court? Do you think there is a standard that's going to actually help plaintiffs win the Section 2 vote denial claims? Putting aside the timing question, which you've raised. So at some point, the Supreme Court is probably going to get involved in one or more of these cases, whether because they think there's a conflict in the circuits or whether because it's just an issue that interests them or whether because it arises in some context that also involves a statewide legislative apportionment and goes up there on their mandatory appellate jurisdiction. So the Supreme Court is at some point going to have to address this issue. Whether they can come up with a standard um, that's clear in the way that, for example, the Jingles standard was a clear roadmap um, is quite a different issue, um, in part because having decided that this is an undue burden inquiry in some ways as a constitutional matter, the question of how you then think about the tenuousness part of the Senate report factors under Section 2 is a very real issue as well. You know, does how how do you assess tenuousness, and what's the weight you place on tenuousness? How do you assess the interaction of socioeconomic factors with the uh, challenge practice? Again, a question. Do you use the same test for thinking about voter ID as, for example, you use for challenges to restrictions on early voting or challenges uh, to restrictions on registration practices? Again, very much an open question. Um, and it seems to me that what has gotten lost through the Supreme Court's thinking about uh, tenuousness, in, thinking about the balancing and the undue burden, is the fact that you have to have some idea of what the burden ought to be on the right to vote. And until voting rights advocates manage to persuade the Supreme Court that voting really is a fundamental right and that the burdens should be assessed by asking, is this actually the state's motivation? It, what is the actual burden on voters? Is this narrowly tailored? Until you get to those things, it's anyone's guess where the Supreme Court's going to go. All right, now I want to get really in the weeds on this question and sure. lose probably most of the listeners to the podcast, sure. if there are any to start Still with. remaining, <laughs> yes. yes. The, the uh, one still remaining. Yes, yeah, so this is something we've talked about before, but not yeah. on tape. So uh, the question is this... Um, uh, a state cuts back on early voting when it had early voting in the past. Um, how do you argue that this kind of what we might call retrogression from the Section 5 context, but we generally don't talk about the Section 2 context, how do you argue that that is potentially either a constitutional or a voting rights violation, while a state like New York, say, which has never had early voting and you just have to show up on Election Day, why, is, why, why couldn't you bring a challenge to that? Or maybe take the view that you should be able to challenge both of those things. You know, is there some kind of right to early voting? Well, I think the challenges to the two look different. Um, and the reason for this is... Once a state has picked an election system, I think that restrictions to that choice should be viewed differently that, than um, asking whether a state is forced to expand. That is, I think there are a wide variety of areas in constitutional law where I don't want to necessarily use the word retrogression, but that's what we're talking about. Could we about. say one-way ratchet? Change. Yes, there are a bunch of areas in constitutional law that are one-way ratchets, and the most obvious of these 
is procedural due process. A state doesn't have to give you a particular piece of property. For example, they don't have to hire you into a particular state job, let's say. But once you are given that piece of property, the state needs to give you due process, which we measure under the Matthews against Eldridge test with regard to, in part, the importance of the piece of property yeah. before they take it away. And it seems to me that's that ought to be the way we think about the vote, which is once you've given people the ability to vote in a particular way and they've developed a reliance on that way of voting, taking that away from them is different in quality than not having given that particular way of voting in the first place. So while I think it is possible to challenge, for example, a state's decision to have an overall election scheme that's extraordinarily restrictive, that challenge is a little more difficult, and the state may have more arguments as to why its election system makes sense than a state that has been giving people the right to vote in a way that's convenient and easy for them, and then says, we're taking it away. I think they do need to justify that, and I don't think it is importing Section 5 into either Section 2 or the Constitution to say, we've always looked at a state's voting rights laws in context, and one of the contexts is the kind of law you had before. So one of the responses I've heard from Republicans to this argument, or arguments like this, is so Democrats can expand the rules for, uh, make it easier for people to register and vote, and then if Republicans want to come in and they have a different policy choice, they're hamstrung, and so that that this is really uh, viewing the law in this way is actually helping Democrats achieve what they want to achieve, where there's room to have different policy choices on these questions. Well, I I understand why Republicans might think that. It does seem to me again, though, that treating this as a as an argument of symmetry misunderstands the nature of the right to vote, which is, I think it is very hard to make an argument that we ought to make it more difficult for qualified voters to vote unless you can put something on the other side of the balance. And the policy on the other side of the balance cannot be, I think, consistent with the Supreme Court's decision in Carrington against Rash or its decision in Dunn against Blumstein, cannot be that by making it more difficult you fence out voters who will vote a particular way in the election. I think that violates the First Amendment. And so an argument that says, well, our policy would be to make it more difficult to vote because, after all, we'd prefer to see a different electorate showing up at the polls is an impermissible argument as long as the difference in the electorate is about citizens who are of voting age, who are residents of the jurisdiction. So um, we've talked about Section 2 and Section 5. We haven't talked about Section 3. And Section 3, the bail-in provision. Bail yes. So this is a provision that will allow a court, once a court finds intentional discrimination, to determine that preclearance could apply to a jurisdiction for up to 10 years for either all or part of their, their voting changes. The DOJ is pursuing this in Texas and North Carolina. Do you think that this, uh, if it's successful in either of those places, is going to be a likely strategy that would continue assuming, for example, that there's a Democratic administration that comes in after Obama? Well, it is a very costly strategy because of two things. One is you have to prove intentional discrimination. And as Congress said in the legislative history to the 1982 amendments that removed the intent requirement from proving liability under Section 2, judges are reluctant to brand 
public officials intentional discriminators. So it's costly and difficult to bring and to win one of those cases. And then the question whether a judge, even if he finds intentional discrimination or she finds intentional discrimination, will decide to order preclearance raises its own set of, of issues. So that while I think it is part of the statute that ought to be enforced, it's not a substitute for a coverage formula. And so turning to that, um, do you think there's any prospect for a legislative solution? Certainly not, not before, not, not in this Congress. Not in this Congress. We'll have to see what happens after the 2016 elections. Yeah, there's a, this Congress is not interested in a real solution to voting rights issues because right now it's such a partisan issue. I want to finish with a couple of questions about 2016. Sure. First, um, what are you looking, I don't know, looking forward to is the wrong term, what are you expecting in terms of the kinds of issues that are going to percolate in the courts, maybe end up in the Supreme Court um, over the next uh, year or so? Well, there are going to be a bunch of shifts in voting laws in a bunch of states. Um, if the Democrats come back in in a particular state or it's a, a Democratic battleground state, you can expect to see uh, legislative changes that will make it easier to vote. I think in a bunch of Republican or Republican-leaning states, states where the Republicans are in control, and it's a battleground state, you'll see some attempts to make it more difficult for people to vote. Um, and those will get litigated. I mean, each of the campaigns will be in there litigate, litigating up a storm. And how much do you think the fate of voting rights depends on the outcome of the 2016 elections. One of the points you made when we just spoke together at um, a conference on the 15th anniversary of Bush versus Gore was that John Roberts is himself a product of that case. Yes. Uh, what do you think about uh, the prospects for voting rights beyond 2016? Well, I think, you know, the Supreme Court, as, as we discussed earlier in the podcast, the Supreme Court is going to have a series of voting rights cases coming up before it, and then, of course, cases coming out of the 2020 redistricting, which will be the first redistricting done without preclearance since since never, because of course even the round of redistricting that happened right after the reapportionment revolution ended up by 1970 with the Supreme Court's decision in the Georgia case being subject to preclearance. So there's going to be huge amounts of litigation coming out of that. Um, I think it will really matter who's on the Supreme Court. Um, if the um, if there's a Democratic president and he gets to replace any of the conservative justices, I think you'll see a substantial change in the Supreme Court's approach to voting rights. Conversely, if a Republican uh, president gets to nominate another justice in the mold of Justice Alito or Chief Justice Roberts uh, or Justice Scalia or Justice Thomas, you will see a dramatic restriction in the ability of people to litigate constitutional voting rights cases, and I think you will see a, an evisceration of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, whether it's declared unconstitutional or not, open question, but if it's not declared unconstitutional, the Supreme Court will ratchet up the results test to the point at which essentially it goes back to being a test in which you have to show purposeful discrimination, racial discrimination to win. Well, Pam Carlin, I always learned so much from sitting down with you. Thank you so much and for taking the time. And I learned so much from you, Rick. So All right.
We, we must both applaud each other. All right. You can applaud at the end of this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassen. Goodbye.